LinkedIn presents. I went from, um, you know, I was a distributor. I'm, I'm, I have a distri- distribution background. So I used to be at Cannes Film Festival right before the pandemic with the checkbook buying films. And so at one point I'm buying films, I've got the checkbook. And then the next one I'm on the streets like... I need twenty dollars. I need y'all to give me tips for this performance, and it's it's a lot of humility in that, and it's a lot of like, what am I doing? I'm trying to connect the dots, but what I learned was it's such an underground world. I saw walking out there now. I see it from a lens of a tourist or a creator, but working in it and thinking about it as a not just a character, but an entrepreneur and all that's happening and what does this mean for me, um, you do take it serious. You take it serious and it gets really tense. Mm -hmm. And there is no HR department. (laughs) (laughs) Right? This is all self-policing at its finest. And it's a lot at stake. And what's at stake is different for everyone. Welcome to Entrepreneur Struggle, where each week we talk to founders and freelancers about their journey creating and scaling up their business. My name is Chris Colbert, and I'm the founder and CEO of the media company DCP Entertainment, as well as the video and podcast recording space, Podstream Studios Times Square. This season, we are part of the LinkedIn Podcast Academy, so make sure to check out our show notes for information about our weekly newsletter and live events. In this conversation, I'm talking to April Russell. April has learned a lot coming from an entrepreneurial family, especially from her mother, who also happened to fire her. Now, April is the founder of Revolutionize Hollywood and Rev Ho House. Before we began talking, I had no idea that a big part of her story is being a street performer in LA. She truly is an entrepreneur. We talk about the pivotal advice that Nick Cannon's father gave her, her experiences working with friends, and we get a sneak peek at her debut novel, which you can get by checking out our show notes. But we start our conversation around Revolutionize Hollywood. Revolutionized Hollywood was really um, birthed really after I became a street performer. So it's so funny because I'm here in New York and I'm walking through Times Square and I'm looking at all of the street characters and the performers and the bussers. And that was me Wow! at one point in time. That was me. That's a hustle right there. It's, it's the best hustle and it's a lucrative hustle. Let's be clear. <laughs> It's, it's very lucrative. I'm going to start doing some, uh, some street you know, hustling out here once I leave. It's a lot happening out there. Um, but it, it came, I was in um, Los Angeles, and I had moved out there and, and pursuing entertainment. And uh, I it was the year I really had to make a decision. Was I going to go the corporate studio route for my professional career, or was I going to go the independent artist creator route? And I was teetering the line on both. I was, you know, because I was really good in the corporate background, but I was so independent, so artistic. And I knew I had to make the decision so I could just mentally make the switch to do whatever needed to be done. And so I made the switch to go independent, and which led me to becoming a street performer because you know, I was like, okay, I got to do something. <laughs> and um, so I created this character called Black Hollywood Maryland, trademarked the character. And I was really taking my street performer 
life very serious. Like I, you know, this for me, it was not just a hustle. Mm -hmm. It was, okay, what can I do? What, what kind of opportunities can I create from this? How can I make this make sense? And um, so I decided to trademark my character's name. So I became the Black Hollywood Maryland. And then I just started to think about the business connections. And really what happened was I started to see my other colleagues, my peers, who are the, my fellow street performers, <laughs> right? I started to think they didn't take it serious enough. I thought, oh my God, everybody's just acting like this is a one-day hustle and there's so much opportunity to really think about this in a much grander way. Were they also trademarking at all? No. <laughs> no, nobody was trademarking. Matter of fact, the city councilman, I had a member, I had a, a meeting with the president of Hollywood Chamber of Commerce, Leron Googler. He's the one that gives the stars out to everyone. Okay. And the city councilman, and they basically... You know, at the time he was like, do you think this is an exception to the rule? Like, why is this what everyone's doing or who no one really does takes it to this level of serious? And I said, no, they don't. But it doesn't mean they should not. And so Revolutionized Hollywood was really wanting me to change the way creators were coming and entering into the entertainment business and think about it with a more entrepreneurial mindset. And I often title myself an entrepreneur, an artist, what's an entrepreneur? Because there's this artistic mindset, artistic, artistic, which is great, and I love that. But I had to make the connection that really, once you decide to go independent, you're an entrepreneur mm -hmm. just with a artistic industry. <laughs> and so you have to approach it like that. And, and and so, and I think that connection wasn't always uh, at the top of my mind. And so I wanted to change the way that content creators and artists approached entertainment and their whole business of that. And then also, more specifically, I wanted to make sure that we as women and people of color were delivering at high levels so that we could be competitive and we could start to um, level the playing ground for storytellers and writers through the lens of women, through the lens of people of color. And in order to be able to level that playing, uh, playing field, you have to create and you have to have, you know, premium quality content. And mm -hmm. so that was my whole, like, got to revolutionize this whole mindset. And it started with a campaign called I Ain't Starving. Okay. And my I Ain't Starving campaign was like, I'm not about to be a starving artist. <laughs> like that whole <laughs> myth, like you got to be this starving artist and like you have to do that in order to be like, and I was just, I just had these shirts and it was like, I ain't starving, I ain't starving. And it was just like, by all means necessary, like, you know, that whole starving, it just was never, uh, it wasn't appealing for me. And so the, the whole thing was, though, so is to create, 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 don't wait. Okay. And the first person who really told me that was uh, Nick Cannon's dad. Oh. Yeah. And, and by that, what do you mean? I was at, at the time I was working as a um, associate producer for the Wild and Out show. Okay. And I was at an after party or something. And I was talking to his dad and around, you know, everybody around. So I was talking to his dad and I was telling him some of my, I was auditioning and I wasn't getting the roles and I was just you know, doing things that I guess every, when you first enter in the business, you just do because you just, that's all you know to do. And he told me, he's like, you have to create your own projects. You have to do your own work. And Don't wait for them to put you and on. And you can't wait. And something about that just, you know, I come from an entrepreneurial family as well. And so something about that just clicked, like, wait, create your own, create, create, create. Don't wait. Don't wait for him or her or them or they to give you a head nod. Don't even wait for him or her or them or they to give you a check, <laughs> right? <laughs> like you have to figure out how to create and not wait and then let it come. If you build, they will come. <laughs> and if you uh, 
create, you know, they'll like it and they'll accept it and they'll watch it. And you just have to do that and do it like with everything you have. And so revolutionizing that mindset of starving to wait on something is was just like not it for me. So that's how I initially came up with the company. Yeah, revolutionize Hollywood. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> revolutionize your mindset and your approach. Well, I, I, this will be my last question about the street performance. I'm really intrigued. I was not expecting this part of the conversation. So, like, I need to ask this, especially because, like you said, we're in Times I Square. Listen. I got street creds. They know me. They know me in Hollywood. <laughs> is, like, is there territorial beef when it comes to you know? Forget about it. It's high school. It's high school. You know, you got the Spider-Man gang. <laughs> you got the Batman, you know, mafia. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you got the, oh, but it, it's, it's, people are feeding their families. Like, I'm yeah. laughing, but this is, this is real life people feeding their families and have been there for years. And this is, they have found a niche and this is what they do. And then you have artists and creators that are there perfecting their craft and working out new creative concepts or new shows or new ideas or for me, new characters and trying to figure out what's happening and taking what they learn. And um, I, I would take a lot of what I learned in acting class, which is character development, which mm -hmm. is if you're walking out here and this new person, who is she? How did the audience react? So you have a lot of energy <laughs> happening out there, right? As well as people are hitting sales goals and how do I make this show better when I added music to my show? And so it becomes real territorial because when I had my show and I had music, I didn't want my, you know, uh, break dancers. <laughs> Don't start your show at nine because my start shows at eight. 30. And so you have to like work out all of these, you know, politics on the street. And it's, it's serious. It gets a little, it's, it's dicey out there. Yeah. I'm, I'm, to be honest, it's like, the I'm streets. Su yeah, I was like, say, I'm surprised streets. I don't see more actual fights between some of these people. Like, I'm sure it might happen away from my purview, but yeah, I'm just, I'm literally looking for like physical you know, Chris, altercations. You just don't see it. Okay. It goes down. Yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> Minnie and Mickey just throwing down, but. <laughs> yes. And so when you're, so, so here's what's interesting because. I went from, um, you know, I was a distributor. I'm, I'm, I have a distri distribution background. So I used to be at Cannes Film Festival right before the pandemic with the checkbook buying films. And so at one point I'm buying films. I've got the checkbook. And then the next one I'm on the streets like I need $20. I need y'all to give me tips for this performance. And it's, it's a lot of humility in that. And it's a lot of like, what am I doing? I'm trying to connect the dots. But what I learned was it's such an underground world. I saw... Walking out there now, I see it from a lens of a tourist or a creator, but working in it and thinking about it as a, not just a character, but an entrepreneur and all that's happening and what does this mean for me, um, you do take it serious. You take it serious and it gets really tense mm -hmm. and there is no HR department. <laughs> right. This is all self-policing at its finest. Like you said, that's high right. School. Yeah. This is self-policing at its finest. And it's a lot at stake. And what's at stake is different for everyone. Mm -hmm. All right. We'll get back on track here. Um, the street performing, it's uh, we'll keep going back to that because yeah. a lot of what changed a lot. Of, that was a pivotal point for my a lot of my endeavors that, you know, uh, triggered from that. Well, and yeah, I guess I said we're going we're gonna to kind of get back on track, but we will kind of touch on some of those things because, you know, the more we talk, the more I realize like how many different positions you've had in the industry, whether it be more the traditional industry or more the street industry aspect of acting and, mm -hmm. and Hollywood. Um, but how did revolutionize Hollywood then, you know, lead into Revo House? So it's the it's the Revo House. Revo, sorry. That's okay. I That's okay. Revo <laughs> House. Um, so okay, it was COVID. It was COVID. 
So I was, you know, in Los Angeles, had been there many years, and COVID hit. And I looked up, and L.A. was, like, quickly shutting down. Like, I think everybody kind of remember. You're in New York, right? Oh, so yeah. It was. It, it's, you, it felt a little like doomsday. It got really eerie. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. It and felt I, like I am legend out here. Like, I was walking down the streets <laughs> of, of Times Square, literally nobody but me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I was in L.A., and it, it, got, it started getting shut down. And so I'm, I'm always one of those people, like, is it going to be a place where I can't get on the plane and fly back? So all my family's in Tennessee. Okay. Like, I'm the only one out way out west, as they love to say, right? And so everybody's in the southeast, the east coast. And so I was like, okay, I better take a flight home. I don't know. You know, today they're shutting down, and you can't go outside. Tomorrow you won't be able to get on the plane. I don't know. I was just really, really, like, terrified. So I took a flight home. It's a good time to go visit family. And um, that was in March. And I was going to stay home for, like, you know, four or five weeks, just kind of waited out to see what was happening. And then a tornado hit um, my hometown mm-hmm. on Easter of 2020. And so, uh, and it, I was there with my parents, thank God, and it, you know, rummaged the whole neighborhood. The whole neighborhood was devastated and it was just a really, really bad um, tornado. And double down, my dad then went through triple bypass heart surgery. And so, and then COVID was at its peak. And at that time, I had to really figure out how to, well, I was going to do it, revolutionize Hollywood. Um, When Hollywood shut down, I'm here and I'm just trying to figure out what to do. So I had to think about it and pivot. And um, I started thinking about opportunities in Atlanta because things were happening in Atlanta from production and my resources were strong in Atlanta and New York. And I was like, okay, what can I, you know, what to do? So I started exploring Atlanta. I had some relationships there. But what I didn't find was a hub a place, uh, I like to call it the distraction-free workspace where you can get real work done, but also um, socialize. I think socialization is a big part of our creative industry and sparking new ideas and then being an advocate for your brand. And so I wanted to create that space in Atlanta because I I had known these nooks and crannies in Los Angeles, but didn't really see it in Atlanta. And so I looked really hard for the right space and I wanted it to be like on uh, land because again, we were in COVID and we needed the outdoors and the nature. Right. And so also the space was probably inspiring for. Oh, and it's so inspiring and it's so nature filled. So I found a place on seven and a half acres, beautiful space. And that's how Rev Ho House um, was birthed. Wow. And as you're building this space out, you know, we were kind of talking offline real quick of just like, you know, us building this space. It was like brick by brick. It just felt like it was a slow grind to kind of get everything we needed together. And I even just know from like buying a house, like, you know, it's expensive to buy furniture and and all this equipment. You know, what was that process for you to like fill the space? First and foremost, I'm still going through the process. As I guess everything's always going through it, right? I'm growing through the process. Um, the, The process was really patience. Lots of patience because I wanted <laughs> to find the right space. And so even to find it was patience because I thought I liked this and I thought I liked that. And and so I had to have a lot of patience and a lot of strategy. And I had to think about like where where uh, where did I want to grow to? And so that's why I decided to do something on land and acreage as well as the space. And so um, once I secured the space, I really, to be honest, I had the blueprint. Everybody says I moved fast, but it's because I had already had everything spelled out. I was putting pen to paper all the quiet nights, you know, because of COVID and some of the isolation moments. So I was always kind of flushing it out and talking to, um, I'm a big person on consultation. I call friends, 
colleagues, family. I call people. I'm like, so what do you think about this? What do you think about that? So I'm I'm really big on asking, you know. Which is really good in this kind of situation because <laughs> you're not just building for yourself. You're building for others. Exactly. Exactly. And what, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. And so, um, so by the time we closed, I was ready for... I was ready. Like I knew exactly where to start and only because I had spent the time while I was looking for the place. And okay, as soon as I get it, what does that look like? And so um, going from there and just making sure first and foremost, what was important for me is that the space felt creative and it felt like a breath of fresh air. And I wanted to be modern with a touch of luxury. So I like luxury and I like working in luxury spaces that are cool, uh-huh. not, not, not stuffy, because yeah. I think there's a stuffy luxury and I think there's a cool eclectic luxury. And so I found like I really work very well in those spaces and I wanted I needed that for Atlanta. Again, New York, L.A. has a lot of that and a lot of hidden gems in Hollywood Hills. Um, and I wasn't finding that in Atlanta. And I wanted, um, I personally as a creator selfishly wanted it. And then I wanted other creators who, you know, may not have expanded and have opportunities to be part of the Atlanta, L.A. entertainment media scene to experience that as well. And so I, I started doing a lot of things like getting cool lighting in and smart lighting and Fandeliers in and just making it a very um, place that felt like what you should feel uh, reaping the rewards of your benefits as an entrepreneur and as a creator. Yeah, something that feels inviting, mm-hmm. warm, like you said, inspirational, and, and it makes you feel creative in the space. And I haven't been there personally, but just looking through your catalog online, like it looks like an amazing space. Lots of different rooms that have different energy to it, but lots of wide open space. Have the water outside. Mm. Yeah. yeah, like somebody like you could come and you would say, "Yeah, this is you know, it's for Chris when he's in Atlanta to feel like, oh." Absolutely. This is where I'm at. This is where I'm creating. And I can create here quietly because sometimes I think and I mean, you tell me Mm -hmm. as a um, creator of content, there are moments where I personally needed to be like library quiet. Like I need to get in my headspace and I need to do deep work. And then there's some times where I need to. I need the energy of everybody in the room. Like, what are we doing, guys? And, and it's celebratory, but I'm also still kind of creating in my zone. And it's just a different type of space. So I don't know. Do you find yourself oh, needing different environments? Definitely. Like when I write, I, I only do that basically explicitly at night, 8 p.m. or later. You know, something where I'm not going to get phone calls, emails. Like I shut everything out and I'm just singularly. I might have like classical music playing because that also spurs my mind. But something that has no words to it. So I can just be singularly focused on this task. But at the same time, like I need to go out to bars and, you know, go out to, to venues to meet people and mingle because also that's where I draw inspiration yeah. of, you know, <laughs> one, feeding off their energy, but two, having conversations to better understand what are people talking about? What, are, what is moving the needle? Because, um, again, as a content creator, you're not creating for yourself. You're creating for everybody. Um, so, yeah, it's, a, it's a definitely a mix of those things. And so it's great that you have that in one space. Yeah. That, and so that was my intent. So the, the thing was to create spaces that felt like that first. Like I had to get the palette right. Yeah. And I did that, like you said, from inspiration from a lot of traveling and a lot of spaces that inspired me. Like, ooh, I remember that one hotel, that one room <laughs> I liked, you know? And I'm I was laughing because like, I definitely, yeah, I do that yeah. now. When I go to hotels, yeah. I'm like, oh, well, let me, okay, take a picture yeah, of this. There, there's some spaces in hotels, I'm like, whoa, this is dope. <laughs> like, and so I would take like little pictures and I'm like, I'm gonna create, if I could create a nook like that. or And so um, when people come in, and it's, it's interesting because I was just doing me, basically, doing me for us. Yeah. Um, but I have people asking me about, like, did I have a design team and this and that come in? But, you know, you're a creator. I think you're just, you're a creator. You create, you design, you, you know, and not to take away anybody's special talent, because I'm sure if I 
had I had the budget to hire a design team, I probably would have, and it probably would have been even that much more um, better. But I was certainly taking inspiration, as you said, from just life experiences and where I've traveled to. And you mentioned team. Like, when did you eventually start bringing in a team to help you with this space? I never do I do I never ever 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 not work with a team <laughs> just because I and, I and I say that because I'm always trying to give credit to the team there's just not a it's there's just no April it's not an April show um because once you get so much stuff going it's just it's too it's much yeah, yeah it's just impossible and so there's always a team of sorts there mm-hmm. and um and everybody's position is so valuable because the team member my right hand to help me find the other team members to build out the house I couldn't have done that without her or I couldn't have done that so so there's always a team along the way right mm-hmm. and it just looks and shapes differently um, along the way so how specifically I mean I think I got my first um, I God I'm like trying to remember how it happened but I think I needed a um, house manager to manage the contractors that was coming in. Because, you know, I couldn't become a contract manager. And yep. so I, that was the first. And that takes a lot of back and yeah, forth. Ex- keeping them on their deadlines. Oh, my God. Yeah, all of that. And then, and and I was still trying to stick in it with them because of the vision, but then still do production and creative work. And you're still running your other company, <laughs> yeah, too, I'm still, Yeah, exactly. Still trying to figure out, you know, how to pay for everything. Um, but it was just one building block at a time. So the house manager and then the general contractor and then the painter and then the keeper and then the yard person. And then so and I I never even bought a place and much less on almost eight acres. Like this was That's a lot to manage. Yeah, I was, you know, I kind of I remember one day I looked up and I was like, April, you've really done it now. <laughs> <laughs> was that a, like, a, did I bite off more than I could chew? Yeah, like, girl, you are, you know, you'd really be doing the most. <laughs> but you feel me? Have you never? I know the feeling. Chris, oh. You, you know, looked at yourself, you'd be like, okay, I know, I, I, I know you'd be wanting to have dreams, but you'd be doing the most sometimes. Yeah, so I wish, I, like, and I don't mean this in a vain way, was like, oh, I wish I wasn't like so talented in different areas because I wouldn't say yes to so many things. Like, there's so many things I want to do. But I say, like, I had to get a whole assistant just to make me say no to things. Yeah. So, so. Like, manage my nose. Yes. Management. Well, it was here was funny because I was, um, you know, I found myself complaining one day, like, oh, I got this to do. I got that to do. What am I going to do about this grass? There's trees. I got this. I got that. You know, whatever. And I had one of my, um, one of my team members at the time basically look at me. He was like... I'm sorry. Nobody told you to go be a bad bitch. <laughs> was, you did this thing yourself. He, yeah, he was kind of like, "What are you?" And when when cry, cry me a river, right? You know, and so that like got me together real quick, right? <laughs> Great to have friends yeah. like that. Yeah, and that, exactly. It was like this. Uh, okay, cry me a river. Go do something less, you know, mediocre. Okay, and so, um, so yeah, at times, you know, but I did. I I looked at all that grass and I thought, wait, what? <laughs> How did you find some of those first? I know you kind of mentioned some of it, but like I know some of the first people I started working with on the DCP side when I started that company, some of them were friends or former colleagues. And some of those friends were actually one of them was a best friend and we're no longer friends anymore. We're actually almost basically arch enemies because of how things ended. You know, how did you find those people? And yeah, it sounds like you've had similar experiences. Um, It's a it's a. It's the word hodgepodge of people. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's a melting pot of people. Um, here, here's what's interesting. When you, uh, I'm just now starting to phase out of like no friends. 
<laughs> I'm phasing out. If I grow a friendship through our working relationship with you, beautiful. Yeah. Right. If we organically grow into a friendship because we work together, I welcome that. But the friend turned worker, team member, paid, you know, need to have deliverables. I'm just kind of done with that. Um, and and really, it was started off. It was a. It was. It was. It's everything. I think for me, instinctively, I always felt like I owed friends because hmm. we come up together. We help. I've helped them. They've helped me. And you know. And oh, now I have an opportunity. Now I have a little budget. I need to hire somebody. Might as well hire hire so and so. And it's Give them just an opportunity. right. And and kind of a little bit of oh, you know, like oh, I remember they helped me do that one time. Whatever that was, right. And so I don't want them to think I'm not grateful now that I'm coming up, you know, whatever come up means. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. yeah. And so you just naturally go to her or him and it's just you you do it and you try to set boundaries and you try to set parameters the best I know how as, you know, novice at that time. And um and to be fairly honest, it's easier. It's easier just to pick up the phone and call the person you know than to put the job out or to interview or to do these things. Like I know the framework of this person. Yeah. Right. And so it's easier and it's quicker. <laughs> and um, I think it's a little bit, I think it was a little bit of laziness on my part every time I would do that because I could, you know, just not really thinking it through. And so, um, and every one of my friends, to their credit, and I, to, I will say this, everyone has always helped me move the needle. Okay. Even if the needle was just one step up, mm -hmm. um, everyone has certainly always helped me move the needle. And I try to honor that work because we all jump in and now sometimes they stop <laughs> and that needle needs to be three more notches up, you know, based on our goals and our objectives. And then once that's not happening, that's kind of where it starts to be demise. I mean, I've had a friend now who just up and left and left all of her stuff there and didn't call, didn't tell me why she wasn't coming back to work, haven't heard from her, called, wow. yeah, called her mom, asked about her, and then no one's just, I have, I don't have any clue. I don't have any clue if it was too much or it, because, yeah, the work started getting really real and the expectations and the, you know, and so I just said, no, I won't do that again. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, like you said, like it, it can be tough hiring friends, but yeah, when you have colleagues that you become friends with, that's a little bit different. And you, you know, they're still setting those boundaries, but yeah, there's the dynamic based on like where the relationship started, I think is part of what makes that a little bit easier. For sure. Um, you know, the, friend, the fact is, what's interesting is so my sisters are in medicine and they run a successful practice together for 10 years. Mm. Uh, but I always tell them they are the exception to the rule. Oh, yeah. I have family. Yeah. yeah who, it never works out well in my family yeah. when people mm -mm. try to work together. And I'm a second generation entrepreneur. My mother was an entrepreneur and I worked for my mother. I've gotten fired by my mother. I, you know, I'm going <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like real fired. Yeah. Yeah. Not like plate, like, not like fake. Fired. Never come back. Yeah. Don't come back. It's over. Go find a job. This is, this is unacceptable. I'm not trying to hear it. You know, that tough love fired. Like, yeah. Oh, I got fire, fire. <laughs> and so, um, and it was some of the best things. And me and my mom have always worked together in some capacity. I mean, that's really, you know, I was probably three years old and she was 
sitting me by her side, you know, teaching me little bitty things in business. And so, um, and as I grew up, I found myself working with her in these areas and also getting fired by her. And so <laughs> I tried to take some of that same modeling and I thought it was going to be what I could like reproduce in these different situations. And it's, it's not anything you can just duplicate. It's really, those are, I really think they're far and in between. Mm-hmm. I think the people, those who can work with friends and family and spouses, which I adore and I would love to have that, I just think that is more of an exception than the norm. Yeah, because a lot of it then bleeds into like those boundaries, too, of like when are we having a personal conversation versus when we're having a business conversation. And yeah, I'm a second generation entrepreneur as well, so I, I totally get that. Like it's tough. Like sometimes like we get on the phone, we literally have to say, okay, this is a personal call we're having right now, right? Yeah. And everybody has to agree. And like as soon as someone slips, no, 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 no. No, we're not, we're not doing business that. today. It, the, co- the compartmentalization is critical. So like at, at work, my mom wouldn't let us call her mom. Like She wouldn't let me call her mom. She was like, I am not mom. Like in front of the customer, she's like, mama. <laughs> you know, she was like, no, it's Miss Russell. It's just, I was like, Miss Russell, Miss Russell. Oh and so, no, we, but this is like, like compartmentalizing, that, right? Yeah. So she's like, we are, com-, and like, you know, because when we were working first, I was really young. You'd be screaming like from the back of the store to the front. Mom, did you get the? <laughs> she like cut like, no, no, this is not what this is. <laughs> right. And so I started getting a real training that, and I didn't, she never use the word compartmentalize but that's what she was doing yeah. here it's miss russell and this is the establishment and then outside of that you know it back at home it's mama right and so those it's so important to have those and like you said once you start um the closer you are working with uh a spouse or a boyfriend, significant other, it's it becomes even more clear to make sure that you, the lines of clarification are clearly defined in each conversation. Yeah. And and really when when is it not both? Once you get so deep in it, it's all it's all business and work at some point. Yeah. Right? You're twenty years into a marriage and not that I've married for 20 years, even 20 years dating, <laughs> 20 days. <laughs> but once you get that deep in it, isn't it kind of all together now? Yeah, I it's mean, all I, life. Yeah, it's life. It's the umbrella of life. How do you go about finding your clientele? And actually, let's start, I guess, from you know finding your first clientele there, because I'm sure that was a little stressful. Okay, now I've spent all this money, I've invested. Like, how do I get people to come here? Especially, you know, coming out of the pandemic, or maybe you're still in it. Um, yeah, how do you how did you find that first clientele there? Well, what's interesting at Revho? I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about Revho House. Yes, so at Revho House. House, we um, it's it's been about a year and eight months, so we are fairly new to the market. And the first year was really more development, developing out the space, getting the model down, market research. And this year, we've just started to penetrate the market. Now, what I did last year to kind of understand the market was I would do very intentional, um, smaller engagements just for like market study and to understand and to do some announcements that we're here and um, just to feel, fill it out. I love to feel my way through, like just me. And when I say just me, meaning me and my team versus bigger um Sometimes I have to get bigger teams to help, and then I'm not as hands-on. I wanted to do a couple of things very hands-on so I could intelligently understand it. So once the bigger scenario came, I knew how to talk about it, right? And And you could also work out any kinks before you made it too big. I'm really big in, like, small case studies just for, like, my own sanity. 
<laughs> like just for my own sanity. And so um, I started doing that in the midst of the build outs and different um, times. And so that really helped. Um, and so this year we are now um, and we're still really ramping. I mean, we're still doing things to really go out in the market. I think we have a big lunch in um, July. Um, but like we're doing now, we're kind of like finalizing our new website. We'll have a new look and feel. So whatever you've seen, it'll be new from that. And um, finding clients has been um, joining the Cobb County Chamber of Commerce. I think you have to be part of the local, you know, it's a business. So you want to make sure you know who the other players are in your immediate territory. Mm-hmm. And then um, certainly other uh, entertainment stakeholders. And so joining those organizations, showing up there. And then socializing, like I'm an intentional socializer. Like I will go, I think I joined like, so Cigar Scene is really big in Atlanta. Oh yeah. I've I've shot a documentary down there and some of our interviews were in cigar places. Like I hate the smell of smoke, but that's just where things are going down. Oh, it's going down. So I joined three cigar lounges (laughs) and all very, three very different. And cigar lounges in Atlanta are like the the boys club. Like it is... It is not. Um, they love women, but it's just a very boys uh, society. And so I joined three of those, and I started like would sneak in there and work as a member, and just to kind of you know get to know people and socialize intentionally. And then, and when the opportunity was right, and you know people say, "What do you do?" I would have opportunities to tell them, and slowly. Um, uh, invite them over, you know, one by one when I had open houses. And uh, even at one of my cigar lounges this coming May, we're going to do our book lunch party. It's actually Cam Newton's spot. It's called Fellowship Cigar Lounge. Uh, and so we are launching our book lunch party. So I feel very honored that they've allowed me <laughs> into their... Uh, like you said, it's a boys uh, club. The fellowship. It's called Fellowship Lounge. <laughs> 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 and so, um, so yeah, so for me, it's just been an intention. I'm such an intentional networker. So you have to like yeah. really be intentional about that and, and never, um, the one by one scenarios for me helped me think about whatever you can do in one, you can do in two and three and massive. And that's really who you should be honing in on. And tell me how people utilize the space, Repo House. They utilize it a couple of different ways. Um, so it's a social and uh, creative content house. So from our social club, it's uh, event bookings and so production. Like we just had, um, they shot a Lifetime film at our house. And so they'll book it for film productions. People book it for um private uh, music showcases. Um, we have a studio there as well. So creating content like that, day bookings, weekly bookings. And then um, we are launching a new uh, brand residency program. And so that's what we're excited about this year. It's going to be a membership and a brand. So brands can come and build out one of the rooms. Mm-hmm. So it becomes like experimental marketing. And so the brands will come and they can have the room for six months and then they can come in and dress the celebrities or dress whomever they need to dress. And so we're excited about that. that's a new division of ours. Yeah. And so um, we like to be brand advocates and advocating for brands. So it's funny because I was going to ask you, how do you kind of uh, be able to forecast revenue? Because I would assume that a lot of these things early on probably were one off. But now it sounds like you have like a steady stream of people who like to use the space. We are building up a steady stream of people that like to use the okay. space. So we are, again, we are, uh, see, we closed on a property September 2021. So we're not even two years old yet. Um, so right now, this is where we're in the pocket of penetrating the market, 
figuring out our steady streams of income, um, which kind of goes back to the entrepreneurial struggle, right? It's like the balance of product development <laughs> and sales, like chicken before, like you got to develop the product just enough so that you can trigger it to sales and you don't want to do it beforehand, but then you got to hurry and get sales in because of the income. And so we're in that delicate turning point right now where we've we think we've got it down now and it's time to now look into, okay, here we go. We are officially ready to penetrate um, all engines. <laughs> all engines go. Do you ever have clients who are saying like, oh, like I wish this space had, you know, these amenities or that. And like, maybe you don't have that yet. And yes. so now you have to balance, okay, yes. is it worth that expenditure? Yes, we do. We have that. Um, you know, and this is interesting. I think you know, maybe, and you can probably attest to this. The suggestions come, <laughs> the 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 wanted suggestions, the unsolicited suggestions and opinions come. Yep. And it's interesting. I think one of the questions I that you guys asked was like, what was one of your challenges as an entrepreneur? And I think it's when to understand that you have enough right now, right, and to go exactly where you are versus always changing it for either your own psyche or for other people's coming in and what, you know, and chasing that. And you'll forever be doing that without setting a framework, understanding you have enough, right? Working what you have, being strategic about the next build out or up level or whatever that looks like, but not moving on a whim, just, you know, at every wind that blows. And yeah. for me, that was a challenge for me at first, well before Rev Ho House. So just trying to figure out, do I have enough? Do I believe in whatever I've created already? And is that enough to do anything with or keep building or keep switching or keep this or keep that? And sometimes that makes you the hamster in the wheel. You're just chasing versus going with right where you are. And so um, I do believe in listening to feedback. And as you listen to feedback, I also believe in implementing those new things that you want to take away from the feedback very strategically, mm -hmm. though. Yeah. Like you said, looking at what's the ROI from the new implementation, does it make sense, and when do we want to do this? Yeah. And sometimes saying, yes, I want to do it means yes, not necessarily right now, though. Yeah. Right. So. And sometimes it's also reading in between the lines, because sometimes they're asking for something specific, but really what they're saying is, oh, I want this room to be a little bit more warm or I want it to be this, like, you know, maybe there is a, a overarching theme about some of the feedback that you're getting. Maybe you address that as opposed to these one-off actual, you know, opinions on what the space should look like or should feel like. I agree. I agree. But to be honest, Chris, that's why I have other people. I can't, I can't <laughs> think about it. It's, it's too much. It's a lot to think about. Like I was, you know, I, it, sometimes I'm, you know, I have uh, Jessica here today, my wonderful publicist, and I literally sometimes I'm like, can you just think about that? I don't know. I don't want to think about that. Yeah. Like, I, don't, I don't know. I just, can you, I, I got a couple ideas, but I'm throwing it over to you. It just becomes too much. I mean, and that's why you have great people and professionals around you, right? To, like you said, to steal, like, what are they saying? Because in my head, I'm going to always see it one way, right? Yeah. It's just, it's me. I'm so close to it or not close enough, I guess. And so I like to, you know, I, I like to let people do what they do. Yeah. No, it's the same. And, and at the same time, yeah, your brain can only be focused. Like, I'm always multitasking my brain, but that just wears me down. And sometimes my brain just shuts down at a certain point. And like, even the easiest task, I'm like, can, you, can someone else just please figure this out? I just, I don't have the bandwidth for this right now. Yeah. I, but see, my team knows. I, so this is, this is, the, this is a, um, this is the, I like to say it's the beauty of working with me, but maybe it's not. <laughs> <laughs> you're a little, yeah. You're, you're a little one-sided. Yeah. Part of I'm going to say it's the beauty for working with me. I, so we work really, really hard, but 
I take my full entrepreneur privileges, right? My full CEO privileges. When I'm over it, I'm over it. Like when I'm like, I'm done. No, no, no. I'm like, like I'm done. Today I'm done. I'm not, no, I can't do anything else. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get a drink. I don't know what y'all are doing, <laughs> right? Like my, I will be like, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to answer a question. I don't want to talk. I want to, I, I want to go have a drink. I want to just have some fun. I am on overload and I am done. And I've had uh, my office manager like, well, okay, <laughs> you can be done too if you want to. <laughs> I'm, you can keep working. I'm done today, and so I will do that. And um, I think it's an advantage because it's. We definitely, definitely work hard and sometimes it's like overdrive, but I am so all about if you're not having fun, if it's time to stop just to reset, you have to stop, right? Like I'll see you guys in the morning. We'll go hard tomorrow, but I'm done today. I know it's, I'm done. Today I'm done. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, and it's, a, it's, it's such, listen, the reset, those resets are so needed. And then the next day it's like, all right, let's go. Yeah. We're back you, on. You're refueling that energy. Yeah. 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 So. Um, you kind of touched on it a second ago, but, you know, I, I really was thinking, you know, back to the street performing, even with the revolutionized Hollywood, just, you know, I feel like there's the industry in Hollywood very much lends itself to imposter syndrome and feeling like you're not enough. And I would almost assume, too, with starting Revho House as well, just like you're in this new space. Like, am I enough? Um, like what was the, you know, what were you feeling that? Is that something you had to manage and how did you manage it? Every day I have to manage that. Every day. I think just as humans on planet Earth, we all have to remember we're enough. We're enough to our significant other. We're enough to our, as a daughter, as a sister, as a friend, as a business owner, as an actress, like as a black woman, as a woman, you know, am I, you know, that's just, it's always your psyche. You're looking on social media. You're like, well, damn, <laughs> am I enough? Right. And I literally have to, and it, it came from a lot of, um, I mean, first of all, I have an amazing family. I have a very, very supportive family. I come from such a, I'm so blessed because everyone doesn't have that. So they've always infused that in the back of my head, but then you thrust into society <laughs> and they just try to dismantle all of that. And yeah. so you have to kind of tap back into like your roots. But um, every day I'm having to tell myself that I'm enough. Like, okay, um, you know, oh, you. I just launched my debut book and it's like, okay, well, that's just your first one. You know, that's nothing. Mm. That's just your, you know, okay, that's Revel that House. That's nothing. Yeah, that's nothing. Okay, I got to hurry up. It's not four houses yet. Oh, it's mm. not this. It's not that. Right? And... I have to like self-check, like, wait, you know, because I'm my biggest critic, but I also have to be my biggest fan, right? I also have to be my biggest cheerleader. I can't wait on Chris to be my biggest cheerleader. You can't wait on April, right? I can't wait on you to tell me to do better. You can't. And so I have to look at things that need to be adjusted and be my biggest critic. But I also have to be my biggest cheerleader and be like, you know what? Damn, you did that. You did that during COVID. Like, and that is amazing. And you got up today. You say you're going to get up at five. You actually got your ass up at five today. Great job, <laughs> you know. And so those is you know, and celebrating the little things to be like that's who what makes you you. Yeah. And understanding like really nobody else is you. Period. At this moment, nobody else is you. And so as much as people are amazing in their own rights. So are you yeah. in your own right. And so I have to self-feed that, though, because some days, you know, it, it sounds good today, y'all. 
<laughs> I'm feeling good. I'm in New York. I'm with Chris. I'm okay. This is all works. Let's sound good today. But you know, like maybe like next Wednesday, you're like, okay, wait, what? What am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> Okay, I said I didn't want to go to corporate rap. Why did I say that? <laughs> and so then you have to go right back to the constant affirmation. And then when you have great team members, like, again, I've grown very close to someone who I hired, and we've grown into a friendship from that. And she often reminds me, like, April, girl, <laughs> like, you are out here doing it. And when you have people that you know it's coming from a genuine place. Yeah. Um, because it's not an ego stroke. I don't – it's not even about that. It's just, yeah. like, being each other's cheerleaders. Yep. And it's it's helpful. Yeah, I have that on my team too. My, my yeah. chief operating officer, Doug Coleman, does that for me a lot, and also checks on me too because mm-hmm. you know she knows the day to day struggle as well. So yeah. it's great to have those people around you. Yeah, and it sounds like yeah, a lot is going well. Obviously, you've got the new book. So yeah, tell me more about the wins. What's the good stuff going on for you right now? Um, yes, we have the news. I have a new urban fantasy novel. I am an author now, so I'm excited about that. Thank you. I'm I'm really so excited about that because. I am not your average author. Why do you say that? What do you mean? I respect professionals so much in their craft. Um, Authors and, you know, a lot of as I'm learning more about the uh, literary world. Again, I come from TV film Mm -hmm. and I, you know, I know TV film professionals. And so I know there are literary professionals that have been doing this and have read millions of books and have always wanted to write novels and so forth. And to be very honest, that was not my background. I wrote the movie and the TV show first. (laughs) And it came from my experience as a street performer. And I was developing the character Black Hollywood Marilyn and I started, you know, really saying, okay, She is a street performer by day, but she has these superpowers that she doesn't know. It's unbeknownst to her. And as I was writing the the story and I started realizing that she came from somewhere else, I was like, well, what's what's the backstory to her homeland, right? What's the backstory to her homeland? And I didn't know it. So it didn't feel real to me when I was mm-hmm. writing. It's like, oh, she didn't come from here. She came from somewhere else. <laughs> you know, it sounded cheesy. And it made me take a step back. And I had to take that step back, and I took it during COVID, and I started writing. And I said, I need to write the story of her homeland before she ever came to planet Earth, and I need to write that in book form. And that's how I started. And, you know, everybody knows I am a big, big advocate of get your fingers to dial and start asking. <laughs> and so I started calling. My aunt is a, a published author, children's books, very uh-huh. well published author, Rita Lorraine Hubbard. And um, I knew her, and I knew like one or two more, USA Today, Times, Ernest Dempsey, and then Dallas. So I called three writers that I knew in this space, and I just started saying, okay, I need to write this story in book form, and I really need it to be um, good, and I really need to, like, what do I do? And I never forget my aunt. Back to You Are Enough, April. You know what to do. You're a writer. (laughs) You're right. It's just book form. You know what to do. And I was like, but I don't. (laughs) I really don't. I'm so scared. Like, I was just scared to... I write. I've been writing since I was a kids' news reporter writing at age Uh, eight. Right? So, yeah. yeah, But I... You were limiting yourself. A book. Who? Me? And I was... It was just frightening. And she was just like, you know... 
you know how to write a book, <laughs> right? And, and and then he's like, okay. So I started writing. Then with the formatting things, you just get people that know formatting and help you format it the right way. And so it was inspired really from my street performing days, and I wrote it through COVID. And so one of the big things this year is Blay Home, an urban fantasy, comes out May 23rd, 2023. So really excited about that. Oh, it's a perfect timing. And yeah, you're going to be able to get a link to this in, in our show notes, also our newsletters. So, yeah, make sure you either pre-order it or order it, depending on when you're listening to this show. Thank you. Um, anything else that's going on great for you? Um, what else is uh, a lot of things that are going great? We have uh, so so for us, the Blay Home Project is a uh, pretty massive creative project for us. So we're creators. We're storytellers and we are creators. Right. Um, I'm an entrepreneur. And so I always am making sure that I'm putting my creativity right in front of all the business, right? So the house and this and those, that's that's really what I consider business endeavors. But at the end of the day, I want to create. And so um, we created a comic book and it's a four issue comic book. And we have a our first single of our soundtrack is ready for the comic book. And we shot the video and we are releasing all of that this year, which is trying to strategically. I, so me, I just want to drop it all tomorrow because yeah, you get course. so excited and that's what you do. But I'm there's a rollout plan. There's a rollout plan. There's a rollout plan. And so for us this year, um, this rollout plan, it looks like novel first and then these other pieces of the creative elements. So this Play Home series is something that we're excited excited about and really excited to show the world about um, black female and male characters because it's an intentional celebration of males and females um, and the roles and the the passions and what they've given to each other lives, right? And so I was very, very um, intentional on showing I grew up with great men in my life. I grew up with great women. But I also grew up with great, great uncles, godfathers, preachers, dad, you know, and they were part of who I was. I mean, I was I had there was always men in my, you know, and then my mom and the, you know, the women in my life. And so I had a really, really great balance. And um, I personally just only speaking for myself, just thought that it's made me such the person I was when I think about, you know, the men telling the little girl like things about men. And I was like, okay, I got that from that. You know, I got that game from them. <laughs> right. And, um, and then, you know, the women's just, you know, stellar women in my life. And so in writing the book, I took a lot of that inspiration when I built out this kingdom. And when I was talking specifically about, um, the men and how they had helped the women and the women uh, paid homage to them and then vice versa. The women were like no joke at all. They were so uh, instrumental in helping the men become these amazing warriors. And so the dynamics of that is just, uh, I don't know, it's just a, it's a big thing for me in this book. Wow. You are so multimedia right now and actually uh, even beyond media. You got the like, yeah, you're doing a lot of things, which I can talk to you forever, but you clearly have to get back to getting some work done and hanging out with your sisters here in New York. Well, thank um, you, Chris. But I really appreciate you being here. This has been an incredible conversation. Well, thank you. And I thank you for having me. This was so fun. And um, my first interview on Times Square. So this is history. Yeah. I'm going to say this is history. I like this it. This is history, Chris. I'm glad I could be part and of history. We're gonna, and we're going to do it again. Thank you, April Russell, for joining us on Entrepreneur Struggle. And thank you for listening. You can learn more about April's work and get a link to her new book by going to our show notes which is also where you can get more information on how to stay up to date on everything entrepreneurs struggle. We are now doing monthly live events, so make sure you're following me on LinkedIn to learn more. 
Thank you to my producers, Heather Johnson, Brittany Temple, and Mike DuBose. Thank you for the support from the LinkedIn Podcast Academy. And until next episode, stay safe and healthy because the struggle is real. Is real.